The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Are we going? We're going. Okay. Father, we're thankful for the evening and the opportunity to be together. Thankful for the great time of fellowship around the table and for the good food there and now. As we uh, look at your word, we ask that you might encourage us with the things that are there about uh, the great salvation that you have given to us as your son uh, talks to you about us and things that he desires for believers. And we thank you for this then. Amen. So we finished up last week, uh, John 16. It took three weeks for us to finish that last verse because there were three big things that he says in that verse, and we completed that. So tonight we're going to put into John 17. I have, I have verse by verse notes going through this, but I was not planning on going through this in a normal verse by verse fashion like we've done a lot of the other stuff in the upper room. Um, what I would like to do tonight, get my notebook open. I had some questions here, and I want to take turns reading through John 17, and I would like us to kind of talk through some of the things that are said here. So we're going to read through this, and if there's something that occurs to you, if there's a, a question you have or an observation, then you need to break in and say, hey, I, what about this, or hey, I was thinking this about this, and share some things as we look at this. This is Christ's high priestly prayer. This is him actually going to the Father and praying for the eleven and us. With no further introduction, <laughs> I'm going to start with verse 1, but we're going to go around. And so this is, so everybody's got to follow along really well in your Bible, because we're just going to go through this one verse at a time. I think that's easier than me trying to pick this, pick this out. Are you ready, Peggy? Mm-hmm. I'm just saying because you were texting, so. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I like that bus. I do, but I think she's got to set in her oh. pocket too. So, yeah. Anyway, here we go. Verse one. Oh, I'm in Acts 17. I was going. Wait a second. I'm not ready. Oh, see, that's what happens when you poke fun at somebody else. You're the one that gets burned by it. So, John 17, verse one. <clears throat> and Jesus, having said these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. The hour has come. Glorify your Son in order that the Son may glorify you. So what does... I think you know she's got a question. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Just what is that? Okay. Well, interesting enough, that was one of the first questions I actually had listed on here. Does anybody want to take a shot at I this? I feel like maybe they sat at no, home. Yes. No, no. No, She kind of I threw that out in the car today. No, That's, I didn't. Not that. Oh, I thought that that one was when I, because I was reading through this nope. in the car again today. Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 2, and I think that this is part of, this is a partial answer to what, Jesus is talking about Philippians chapter 2 
in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, Reflectively think, frame your mind, or set your mind to this thing, let this be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about an attitude. He uses a word, the verb phreneo, to have a frame of mind or set a frame of mind. So this frame of mind, you have this frame of mind in yourselves. And he uses a verb there for doing this. But this kind of frame of mind, which is in Christ Jesus. Usually when we think of frame of mind, what do we connect it with most often? Position Our position in Christ. But this one is not a position in Christ in particular. This is showing you that there are multiple things that we might frame our mind with in a given setting, and they all could be appropriate. This one is one that Christ had in himself, who existing, existing in the form of God. That, so he was God. I was just reading a man the other day. I, I put up some blog posts not too long ago on who Christ is. Uh, well, I think I was sending those out on the sun, and I got response. I, I don't always post questions or responses that other people put out there, especially if you get somebody that's anti-Trinitarian. And I had like two guys it's that Steve. just boom, boom, boom. What? Steve? No. No, I don't. I have no clue as to who these guys are. I read some of your comments. Oh. 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 Yeah. Well, this is on the blog post. This is not on the video. So this is on the written stuff. And these guys were going through saying there is just no way Jesus is God. There can only be one true God. And obviously, they don't understand that. They think the minute you say Jesus is God like this, now you're He's saying that there are two God gods. God. That's what they think you're saying. And uh, I, so, but the significance of and so what the, this one of these guys said is Jesus was divine, but not a god. But angels are also divine, so that's not a problem. So that's the way he handled it. But verse six, no, it says Jesus exists in God's form. That's it. It's his nature. And the word exists, or was, some of your Bibles have, that word huparkon means that you exist in the possession of a thing. It's not just that you're existing. There's another way you could say you exist in Greek. This particular word would emphasize that you're existing in possession of a thing. In fact, a, a form of this word occurs in the book of Acts for your possessions, things that you own that people then in turn sold and brought the proceeds to help the church out. And you have that in the book of Acts, and it's based on this word. Which it's, word? it's the word, uh, read your Bible, and I can tell you which one it is. In verse 6, yes. Who, although he existed in the form of God. Okay, it's the word exist. So that means with. Possession. Exist in the possession of, yes. So he exists in possession of God's form. Okay. Not just kind of like God, but God's form. But he did not consider equality. Not in this verse is not what he's talking about. He's not saying that in this verse. We have, uh, we have that in, in Hebrews chapter 1 where it says that that's what he is. Yeah. So here, existing in the form of God, he did not consider, he did not lead his mind to look at equality with God as something that he had to snatch at. He had to grab it. See, other beings like Satan, what? They wanted to be equal with God and they tried to grab at it. Jesus Christ didn't have to do that. He already was equal with God. So being equal with God wasn't something that he had to look at and think, I should grab at that. It was his. He just told us that in the previous statement. Then he goes on. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. 
Gallons, gallons and gallons of ink have been spilled through the centuries trying to explain what it means when it says Jesus emptied himself. But if they just read the next verse, it says he took the form of a slave. That's how he emptied himself. He's God. Just told us that in the opening statement back in verse 5. He doesn't even have to snatch at being equal with God because he is. But he empties himself. Now, what does it mean when he empties himself? He takes the form of a slave. Is God a slave to anybody? No. No. But when Jesus Christ, and he's going to go on here, coming to be in the likeness of men, see? So when he came to be like us, he comes to be a slave. He doesn't do his will. I should have asked that question. What does a slave do? His will? Yeah, the will of another. There's a verse, I think it's in Luke, that Jesus uses this statement. He says, you guys tell me. He says, if a master comes in from the field, or a slave comes in from the field, pardon me, a slave comes in the field, does he just tell his master, I'm going to sit down and eat? No, the master says, no, you're going to clean, you're going to fix my food, you're going to serve me and take care of me, and then you can take care of yourself. In other words, the slave puts his master first. And that's perfect for the Gospel of John, because what's the Gospel of John been showing? That Jesus... What? I just can't hear. He's God, but he's serving it comes out again. I didn't come to, I'm not doing my own will. I'm coming to do the will of the one that sent me. I did the works he gave me to do, which is going to fit right in with exactly the question that's being asked. So he took the form of a slave. He emptied himself, became to be in the likeness of a man, and having found to be then in that outward scenery as a man. So there's two things. He's in the form of a slave, he's in the likeness of a man, and he's in this outward appearance as a man. Three ways of stating he's a man here, he's a man in terms of his being subject to somebody else, but he also appears a man on the outside. So three different ways of emphasizing. And I can guarantee you most people that have had heresies about Jesus not being God have erred at least on one of those fronts. Okay? At least on one of those. You had some people towards the end of the first century and in the beginning of the second century, they're called docetists. It comes from the Greek word dekeo, which is what the word glory comes from, interesting enough. But it meant to think or to seem or have an opinion. And the idea was, they thought Jesus just looked like a man. He just seemed to be, to be a man, but he wasn't really a man. He's God that just kind of appears to be a man because they couldn't handle this idea that God actually became flesh. John 1, 14. And what's also neat about this verse, when you really look at these words, it eliminates the confusion. And what it really teaches, he's God and he's man. Completely God, completely man. Mm -hmm. And uh, hidden in those words, Morphe and the schema, it, that's... Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Josh. So, verse 8. And also that he died like a man. Which is what he's going to come up to next when it says, and he humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death. He was obedient. He died because the Father gave him a command to lay down his life. And we have that in John chapter 10. He says, I have a commandment from the Father to, take, to lay, lay it down and commandment to take it up again. So he says he became obedient unto death, even a cross death, a cross kind of death. In other words, you might take a noble death. You might say, hey, you're going to have to die. Well, I'm going to die for this person over here and thrust me through with the sword and I'll, you know, take it nobly. Hanging on a cross was not a noble death. 
Hanging on the cross was, from the Roman point of view, it was the death of a criminal. It was a humiliating death. It was one of the most torturous, humiliating deaths that the Roman Empire could devise. And that person hung on the cross, sometimes for up to three days in these conditions. And you know what happened? You know? What? They suffocated. But it's not just that. It's that they're humiliated before everybody else. All these other people walk by. They didn't go, they didn't go execute people away from the public eye. They executed people in a public place where people walked by. And it tells us that in the Gospels. Yeah, and they put a sign what the crime, crime was. So that if I'm walking by and I'm thinking of engaging in insurrection against the Roman government and I see a guy hanging on a cross just about fully to expire because he's already been there for two full days and I see guilty of insurrection, I'm going to go, huh, I don't know if I want to go down that path. Makes you think about the crime. See? So this is why when it says a cross kind of death, nothing noble about a cross death. The only reason it's noble from our point of view it's because it's what he, what God chose to secure our salvation, right? That's what made it noble. Were you going to say something? Well, I was just thinking how kind of opposite our prison systems are today. They're typically in remote areas, behind fence, behind cement structures where you really don't see them. Yeah. And the justice is carried out 30 and 40 years after the event. Yeah. 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 The execution is well, really your appeals. Yeah, I mean... That was pretty public. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And it tells you that. In the gospel accounts, it tells you that there were people that were passing by. It doesn't say the people that came out to see the, ex see the crucifixion. They were just passing by because it was in a place where people walked by in that area. And so they come by and they'd see this. This is what's happening. And unlike our culture, well, I shouldn't say that. What are our kids? You have kids that are eight years old and they're watching... You know, what was somebody talking to us about watching John Wick the other day? And they were talking about, you know, it's just a gratuitous violence. I mean, how much the body count, bing, 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 and just goes up. Kids watch that stuff. It, it, but, so, but some of us are maybe sensitive. I can guarantee you we would never have let our girls ever watch that kind of stuff because we're like, I don't want them to become desensitized to this ridiculous violence. That was our, that was our take. If you feel guilty about that, I did a good job. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's not what I was doing. I'm just saying we didn't do that. Kids were canceling movie night. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, this, this is to the point I was going to make. If you, were, if you had lived in that area and there was a crucifixion going on, you and I might be, you might be surprised by this. But parents were like, you know what? I'm taking my kids for a walk, and we're, they're going to see these people dying out there because I want my kids to know the seriousness of being disobedient and getting out of line. I want, you know, I want to, back in the 70s, they had a thing called Scared Straight where they would take kids into prisons, you know, and they'd do some time, set, set some time in prison just to kind of help gang kids and stuff realize, this, you want this life? Is this really what you like? You know, anyway, but that was, wasn't that in the 70s? Scared Straight, I think it was, are you yeah. A, are, you, are you going running for office? No, <laughs> absolutely not. No, I'd vote for that. you couldn't yeah. offer enough for me. That's really, I mean, we had a career fair today, school. You know, they, it was cool. It was great. They had multiple branches of the armed forces, uh, numerous universities, Perry Tech, um, aviation, ag mechanics, medical, affluence, <coughs> health, etc. It's really interesting. We just set up one. It's just prison bars. Like, this could also be your future mm -hmm. occupation. Really? 
You know what I mean? Like, I didn't. He's saying oh. that would have been. I was, no, it's like, wow. <laughs> hey. No, but I'm saying that he's kind of sobering, the right? The closest like, thing they had to that was the seatbelt simulator. Yeah, or the dog chase, yeah. Oh, they had a dog chase? Well, yeah. I mean, they had a dog that, I guess. Uh, didn't, they have, we, didn't they have Darren suit up in a costume or. One, this was, is a few years that back. Was years ago, but uh, well, oh. I remember. But no, um, um, oh, Delarosa. He had his dog. He's been working for right. four yeah. years, five years, whatever. And he has that big arm thing. Man, that arm thing comes out, and that dog's like, Whoa. he knows. I think that the uh, yeah. oh, he's a junior. Uh, uh, Christensen, Darren's boy. Uh, Seth. 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 I think he did it. And then I think he was like, uh, I don't know, liability wise, <laughs> you're actually. Yeah, that's scary. Kind of allowed to let a dog talk on the morning. But Randy did it once. No, I'll let you get back to your Bible study. And they told him, <laughs> don't run. Do not run. If you run, that dog's going to just grab you and throw you to the ground. <laughs> Brace yourself. <laughs> Randy's like, this is like, ha ha, you can see this dog just coming across the field. <sighs> Here we go. Sure enough, that dog hit him. He's like, I tried to stand my ground, but he took me right Took him away. <sighs> Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, the whole point was it would be <laughs> interesting if they had a prison cell that kids could just see that and go like, huh, these other options look better yeah. Yeah. in comparison. And I don't want to drag this out, but the part of the scared straight thing was yeah, is because of, because they have they would yeah, and they'd have prisoners come in and talk about their experience because sometimes kids that get wrapped up in gangs and such like that, sometimes their friends that get out, they're like, Oh, I was I was tough. I got through that, it was no big deal, you know, and I'd go back again and they're they're like they don't really want they don't really they really don't want to go back. They really don't. And so the kids get this idea, it's not that it's not that bad. And everybody's gotta do their time, you know. To, to really be and it's and it's not and that's so that's one of the reasons that they did that yeah and I remember listening to a criminal uh, uh, an ex-con come into our school and talk with us about yeah. what yeah. prison was really like and I'm sure that was slightly whitewashed anyway back to our main study all of this all of this illustration was all just to remind us when it says that Christ died on a cross we think of that as very noble but just trying to put it in the context you and I do not I don't know that we always fully grasp in our modern culture 2000, 2000, well, 2,000 years after the fact just how horrible and embarrassing a cross death was. And not just embarrassing like, oh, I'm embarrassed. But like, this is just a, this is not a noble way to die. It's, it's, a, it's like, you know, my son died in battle. That's noble. Let's give him a, a posthumous star. My son died on a cross. Oh, he was a criminal. <laughs> he was bad. You know, that's what it was associated with. See, and so this is what this this is the whole point. But it says Christ was obedient. See, his death on the cross was because he was being obedient to the will of the Father because he'd taken on himself the form of a slave. That's the whole background of this, and that's the attitude that Paul's trying to get at in Philippians. Because remember, not to go back and teach the book of Philippians, but that's the whole point. You guys need to start serving together because somebody doesn't want to serve together anymore because their feelings were hurt or something like this, and they don't want to work together. And you guys ought to have the attitude Christ had. Yeah, he legitimately was equal and really didn't have to serve because he was God, but he willingly became like one of us, and he did serve. He did serve as a slave and have this attitude. Verse 9, Wherefore, 
Now, it doesn't use the word glory fear, but wherefore God has highly exalted him and graciously given to him a name that is above every name, in order that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those that are in the heavens and those that are the earth and those that are under the earth, and every tongue will confess or agree that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what Jesus says. You glorify me that I might glorify you. See, God's glorified by Jesus Christ after he dies, then rising again. And when he ascends, and what does it tell us at the end of Ephesians chapter 1? When he ascended, what did he do? Where did he stop? He sat down. Well, he sat down. Above. But where did he stop? What? He went above everything. Yeah. He said he went above all the heavens. He didn't stop where the spirit beings, they've got a boundary. Those, those spirit beings that are out there, there's a place they don't go. Because it's outside of the creation. But Jesus Christ kept on going beyond the creation out there. He kept going out there where only God exists. I just was watching on Monday night, Kevin Jeffries is talk, was talking about the, the doctrine of God. And he, I couldn't see his picture, but I could imagine it because I've done the same thing. You draw a big picture, a big circle like this on the whiteboard. His was a television. And then you put one dot in the middle and he says, that dot, that's the, that's the entire physical creation, the entire creation. But God's essence is so, so much bigger than all of this creation. And so Jesus does that. And all those spirit beings that watched him, shall we say, leave heaven, become man, and live this life down here, they see him after he resurrects, ascend back up there where only God can go. And they realize that that, down, that life down here and everything he did did not change him one iota with regard to his deity and his prerogative, his ability to be where only God can be. It hadn't altered him. As God, he still changed. It affected his human nature. It affected him in the realm of his, his thinking, his choice as a person. But it didn't change his divine nature. If it would have changed the divine nature, it would have changed the Father and the Spirit, because there's only one divine nature that all three of them share. Okay. So Peggy's question is, glorify me. Part of that glory that the Father is going to give to Christ, he says, now, he says, my, what is he, let's go back over there to, well, let's talk about two other things here in verses 10 and 11 here of chapter 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Everybody's going to. Whether they have rejected God or believed in God, every knee's going to bow. There's not going to be anybody that's going to stand their ground like this. Remember that from Dances with Wolves? Remember what uh, the, the, I can't remember what her name was. She who stands with fist in the air. Or something. What was it? Is that right? I said Tatanka. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Because she was defiant. She was defiant. There is nobody. Kevin Costner. Thank you. No, that's okay. That's okay. She who stands with fists in air. Yeah. She was defiant. She was defiant. That's the point is nobody, nobody in the future is going to be defiant. There's not going to be anybody at the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Nobody at the judgment of the servants of Israel. Nobody at the judgment of the great white throne. Because those are the judgments in which unsaved are judged at those three judgments. Gentiles at the judgment of the sheep and goats at the end of the tribulation. Judgment of Israel, the slaves, at the end of the tribulation. And then at the very end of the millennial kingdom, the great white throne in which all the rest of the dead are raised. We'll pause. Come on in. <laughs> So anyway, no one's going to stand at those judgments and stand there defiantly and go, I'm not bowing my knee to you. 
They're all going to recognize who Jesus Christ is. They're going to recognize his ability to judge. They're going to recognize his authority. And they will all bow their knee. Not only that, but verse 11 also says, and every tongue will confess or every tongue will agree Jesus is Lord. There's nobody. You've had people today like those two people that responded on, on the blog. And they say, Jesus isn't God. Jesus isn't God. And you've all probably run into people like that, whether they've been hostile or just disagreed kindly. No one's going to do that. Every single person that goes to the lake of fire is going to have acknowledged, number one, you are absolutely who you said you were. I rejected that, but it is true. They're all going to recognize it. It's going to be very different than the court systems. You get people that put on trial, and they come, they get their sentencings there, and they're, they're going in there going, I, I got, I don't know, I can't think of any words to use. I, I'm getting cheated. This, I'm getting a raw deal here. This is, I shouldn't be getting this. The kangaroo yeah. court. Yeah, kangaroo court, thank I'm you. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying that they're innocent. I'm just saying even, you know, and George Sisson said that to me years ago, which I didn't know. He said, you go into most prisons and you interview most of those guys. Most of them are innocent. They're all innocent. I didn't, I, I got a raw deal, yeah, you know, and. That's the way people, and that's the way people look at, you know, you go around the people in your community that you talk to. They're thinking, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not really that bad. You know, that's all a denial of what God says. So with all that, we go back to John chapter 17, verse 1. Someday I'll learn to give short answers. <laughs> I don't know. Ben's not going to hold out much hope for that. But, uh, but verse 1 Jesus said these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your son. Now, it's the hour because it's the hour in which Jesus Christ is going to go to the cross. He's he was been talking about that. He says, this is, he says, this is back in uh, John 7. You know, his brothers come and say, go, go on down to the feast. Show yourself to your disciples because nobody hides what they do. Make yourself out there. In other words, they're taking the world tactic. How, how does the world tell the church to be church. Parade yourself in front of the world. Wave your banners and your flags. Get their attention. Popcorn, popcorn. Get your popcorn. You know, and this is what we do. And Jesus goes, no, that's not the way I do this. He says, this is your hour. My hour hasn't yet come. His hour is going to come when he is going to, in just a few moments after John 17, when he's done praying, he's going to walk out, out the city of Jerusalem, go across that little valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to go in there and pray. And he's going to submit. And there's going to be this, all these Roman soldiers and people that are going to come out. And it's going to be his hour to submit to them. To let the creature, the creature, take power over the creator. It's an interesting way to think about that. The creature is going to have the ability to have power over the creator. So. That's not just that. It's not a 60 minutes. Oh, yeah, it's rising from the dead. Yeah, it's it's this whole all the way. It's this whole period of time where where he's going to be on the cross. And think about that when he's on the cross, does God is God glorified even when he's hanging on the cross? Yes, because when that darkness comes over, every even the people that don't really think anything about him, they're amazed by him. And one of those thieves on the side, and remember, lay stays for thief. It's not a five-finger discount that Josh has to worry about. Lay stasis is a, is a reference to a kleptos. 
is a person that helps himself, sneaks things in their pockets. Do you think, know what a kleptomaniac is? Yeah. They steal? That's a Greek word for somebody that just like goes in and they help themselves steal stuff That's in the store, put it in their pockets and walk out. Leistos is the word for the criminals that Jesus is crucified. They're violent criminals. They're the ones that pull the knife out at the store and go, give me all your money, or a gun in our modern society. Or they use it to commit a violent crime. Yeah. <clears throat> Because people are, and we know that in our world, people are prosecuted differently if they go in and steal from you than if they steal from you at gunpoint with a weapon. Yeah, there's a difference. And so these guys are up there. And Jesus is, and God's glorified because Jesus, he's not like other criminals. First thing out of his mouth while they're crucifying him. First thing out of his mouth. They don't know what they're doing, forgive them. Yeah, yeah, that's the first thing out of there. Just trying to think of the second thing. I think the second thing is, uh, woman, uh, behold your son, looking to John, and then to John, uh, man, behold your, your mother, turns her over. And then there's another thing. And then he's silent. He doesn't say anything until the very end of the, la of the six hours. And that darkness comes over, and all these people watching this. And this one, oh, the, oh there is, I'm trying, I couldn't remember what the third thing was, and it was the thing I was driving at, and I forgot it. it today, yeah, because... This one violent criminal that's hanging there. He, at the beginning, what's he doing? Mocking him. He's mocking Jesus just like the other guy is. But eventually, he says, Jesus isn't like anybody else. I've never seen anybody on a cross that's been like this. And it, he realized, wait a second, this guy is innocent. And he says that to the other guy. What are you doing? What are you doing not mocking him? We're here because we deserve this. But he's innocent. And then he turns to him. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Meaning, apparently, he did know something about who Jesus was. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he could turn his head enough to see that King of the Jews sign up there and was able to piece this together because Jesus isn't preaching a message to him except by his actions. Think about that. And that, So there's a man that gets saved while he's hanging on the cross witnessing Jesus' distinct demeanor while he's on the cross. Okay? So God is being glorified, and the Son is being glorified during this ordeal. Okay, that says, Father, the hours come, glorify your Son. This is one that says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Right. So, how's the Father glorifying the Son? And this is what we're talking about. Okay. I think it's because the events that are taking place and, and this whole crucifixion that the Father has planned, the Son's going to get to demonstrate something about His unique character. The fact that he's absolutely innocent okay. by how he responds. And so there's a man that responds. And then at the end of those six hours, when Jesus bows his head and releases his spirit, well, nobody did that. Nobody did that. People died not of their own accord. They just ran out of energy. Jesus at six hours says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he brings about his own death. You know how many people I've known over the years that are suffering with cancer or some other disease and they wish they could die. They just wish they could release their spirit because they are so tired of the pain they're dealing with. But they can't. Jesus could. And the centurion had probably witnessed enough crucifixions as a leader of these, uh, a military leader of these people. He watches this and he says, remember John Wayne? Sure, truly, sure truly, this was the son of God. Remember Dan Dalkey could really do that one well. Anyway. John I think a big part of this the glorify that the Son may glorify thee 
it's submitting to the plan like it would be mm -hmm. intimated, but then going beyond looking down and what's said next with the eternal life and everything, it's looking at the fact that his identity changes after the cross. He's no longer just Jehovah. He's no longer just the anointed one. He's going to be the glorified resurrected one. And he's going to have a whole new identity in that realm. And it's all because he's submitted to the Father's plan. And now he's, he's, glor he's glorifying the Father. And he's gonna, uh, it's also going to glorify him as he continues to carry out the plan. And, yeah. Which goes along with the Philippians that he, he submits to this. And the result is in the resurrection, the Father resurrects him. Spirit resurrects him. He resurrects himself. All three persons of God are involved in the resurrection. And he, he's resurrected. And as Josh was saying, when he's resurrected, what, what, was the, what was the starting point over there? Or, the, or the, the, the main attitude point in Philippians 2? Serve. To serve. Added at the attitude of a slave. When Jesus Christ arose, was he a slave? No. No. He's not a slave. He rose, he rose absolutely as, as Lord of all. He had been Lord of all, but now he really is going to exercise that. And he's going to ascend to the Father. He's going to ascend back where only God can go. All the spirit beings, we don't get to witness that. We only read about it, but spirit beings got to witness that. Him going back where only, where only God could do. That's, remember that? I think that's Ephesians 1.19. And then, then he comes back, and he's with these people. And his relationship to them is still one that's kind, but it's also very different. I would hedge on that he's not a slave because when he raises on high, he is the Lord, but what are we told to do? We're told to love as the Lord is dedicated to the church. And what is that dedication? It's love. Self-sacrificial service. So he's, it's the idea of not of a despot Lord, even though he is an all-powerful ruler, but he is like the benevolent head of the body that is looking for the best of the body. And, but, and that's towards us, whereas the slavery that he was doing in Philippians 2 and, and the emphasis, emphasis in John is not a slavery to us. It's been a slavery to, to the will of God the Father. Yes, so I would agree with you on that. But he's not, he's not a slave in the way that right. it's portrayed elsewhere here in Scripture. So as a result, when he does that, then the Son glorifies the Father because he's able to demonstrate this was the Father's plan. Every aspect of this has been exactly what's been planned out. And, and uh, I'm going to... When does that I, happen? What? When does that happen? I would say that happened when he ascended on high and came back, and especially once the church starts, about 40 days after the crucifixion and resurrection, when the church starts and the Holy Spirit comes, all of a sudden, I think some of these people understood more than we, than we realize. It's always interesting when you read liberal Christian, liberal Christians, that they always think that these people had a very uh, rudimentary, uh, what am I trying to say, prehistoric faith, something, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's like these people didn't really know very much. I think they knew way more than we understood because the Holy Spirit, we saw that in John 16. Jesus said, when the Spirit's come, he's going to be teaching you guys all kinds of stuff, stuff you can't handle yet. And grant, granted, God uses Paul to, to break out a lot of that. But there's a lot of things that I think these people early on, did they understand that they had a whole new relationship to Christ on the day of Pentecost than they'd had even the day before? Absolutely. And that includes the 11 disciples that had walked the earth with him. They understand that because now they know. What did he say in John 14, 20? 
in that day, you will know experientially that you are in me. You are in me. They know that. They, on the day of Pentecost, they learned that they are in Christ. Something a lot of Christians today live most of their life and they never really learn that or what it means. And they learn that. And then they also learn that he's in them. I didn't know that. I didn't know what that meant. But as a kid, I could tell you, when you were, I was five or six years old, you say, where's Jesus? He's in my heart. <laughs> I knew that kind of stuff because people always said that. You know? So, so the Father's glorified by the Son coming down here and all these other things that he's been talking about in the upper room starting in John 13. And I marked down some of these things. What are some of the new things we've looked at? We've been doing this study a long time, but think of what are some of the things that are new that Jesus introduced to these disciples in here? New a new indwelling. A new command. New command to love. What's your future? That he's going to? Prepare a place and come back. So a new future hope. And that's true. The other part of John 14, 20. A new position. You're going to be in Christ. You're going to know that. New communication. A new, new ability to talk to God. Yeah. So we're six. got to start over again. <laughs> a new way of learning. He tells them that in John 16. The Holy Spirit, more than once he indicates that the Holy Spirit's going to be involved in teaching people. Helping us understand things. And then there's another statement about an aspect of communication that he just brings out earlier. A new, a, a new way to relate to God. Not only are we in, in Christ, and Christ is in us, but we can abide there. We can actually be called to rest at ease in that. That's a new part of this relationship. See, so he gives these new things, and all those new things are designed for you and I. And this is the point of the, John, of the prayer in John 17, is that we can live this out. And when we live this out, guess what? The Son's glorifying the Father because of our relationship to the Son and what he's doing in us. The Father receives glory from the Son completing the work that the Father gave him to do, what he did on the earth, and now the relationship that we have. Does that make sense to everybody? So what, what kind of glory is that? I mean, isn't there a glorious uh, reputation? And I would say that this is what you're looking at. You're looking at, you're looking at God's reputation. Think about that. I, you know, I, this, it, this catches me every once in a while. I don't know if it ever catches you, but I start thinking about who we are in Christ, and I start thinking about those things in certain settings, especially when I've been kind of a little bit on the ornery side, and my mind has been messed up with other stuff. And I'm caught a call wrapped up in stuff going on in the world. And then I start remembering who I am in Christ and this relationship. It just, it just hits me. And I'm just standing there going, what an incredibly gracious God that every moment of every day, no matter whether I'm living as I should or whether I'm a downright stinker, you keep saying that I sit at your right hand in Christ in perfect righteousness just as you have. God's kind of righteousness in Christ. And that's just one of those things. So is this glory or reputation, when, when we're, you're mentioning about position in Christ, is that the glory or reputation is in Christ? Or that, now this is, this is, that we can live that out 
and people can see the character of God. At the very least, I get to see it in my life, you get to see it in your life, but we also, as we're living together, I get to see it in your life. Other, I, I even think the world gets to see this. They just might go, eh, whatever. Or sometimes they might come, can you tell me why you're this way? And you get that first Peter 3.15 knock on the door. Kevin Jeffries, is, I've heard him say this statement. He's not scripture, but I've heard him say this several times. He says a lot of us as Christians, we're trying to create 1 Peter 3.15 moments, trying to get people to ask us that question. He says, you don't have to do that. If you just live the Christian life and you're doing the things God set before you, people are going to see it. And if they're supposed to see it, they'll come knocking on the door. But if you're not living it and you're trying to create those moments, they're going to go, I'm I wasn't wondering. I wasn't wondering about that, but I guess okay. Let's go with this. And they listen to you. When they're all done, they're going okay. Walk away. Still an unbeliever. That's kind of a. That would be your own work. That would be. Yeah, yeah. And so the significance, like you're saying, is when you're experiencing this relationship, you in Christ, and Christ is in you, and all of this is coming about as the Son's gone through the cross, has been resurrected, ascends on high, and all of this is put into motion. The Father's reputation is shown by what he's doing in us, what he's accomplishing in us. Long answer. Did that answer that question? Yeah. It still hasn't. Okay. Sorry. So the son, is, the, son is glorifying, the son is glorifying the Father by what's happening with the body of Christ. He's showing the Father's reputation because the Father's one that has well, planned this out. But John, verse 14 doesn't explain, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Right, but yes, that's true. But he says, in order that the Son may, so he's looking to the future. So the Son's not done glorifying him. There's, he, has done, he has demonstrated one kind of glory, but there's more glory to show. That, that is future tense, that the Son may glorify him. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's not future tense. It's subjunctive. It's, it's something that's going to happen, may happen out there in the future, but it's not, yeah. Okay. The question is when. Not yeah. Will it not happen, will, not when, when it's going to happen. Yeah. So it is future. It's just not a future tense in Greek, but it's we would call it future. Okay, I'm just logical. Yeah, the future. Okay. So having said all of this, I'm looking at what time. So the bright sun is going to be happening starting now. Yeah. Through all that and transcending above everything, and then sitting down. And it's glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. But then you get down into Jesus Christ in verse 3. So, oh, and in verse 5, um, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Which is what? Well, it's just you've got the Son, you've got yeah, Jesus Christ, and this glory I had before the world existed even. Glory. So let's so let's read. We were going to read verse. We were going to read verse by verse, but we haven't got out of verse one yet. So let's read these following statements here. That's fine. I mean, this is if we don't if we don't answer these questions, what are we doing? And that was the whole purpose of this. So verse two, as you have given him authority over all flesh. In order that he might, in order that all that you have given to him, he might give to them eternal life. See, that's part of what he's doing. 
this is one of the ways that the son's going to glorify them. But it, he, can't, he doesn't give them eternal life by shortcutting, by taking a shortcut. He's not going to go around the cross. This is all going to happen through the cross. Remember back in John 12, he says, I'm not going to ask you, Father, to escape the cross. Because I came for that purpose. So I'm not going to ask you for that. So when people say when in the garden, the cup, take this cup away from me, he wasn't saying, is there a different way that we can do this so I don't have to get on that cross? That's not right. That's, that's not what he's saying. That's, no, that's, that's it's, talking about, it's talking about time frame. It's talking about a time frame thing that's going on in there, and that's a whole other, other big study. So we'll pass over that for the time being. But we were talking about being in Christ and Christ being in you. That's this whole issue that he's going to give us eternal life. But eternal life doesn't do you any good if you don't have a position in Christ because you, you don't have any keys to the vehicle. You don't have any way to use it. The only way you access eternal life is through your position up there in Christ. He doesn't bring that out, but he's already talked about that. Go ahead. Okay. I just have a question about the pronouns here. Okay, so, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay, we we'll go back to the end of verse one. What, what's the last phrase of verse one? Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Glorify. Why doesn't he say glorify me? me. He kind yes, of starts see? distancing himself from himself a little. He starts speaking of himself in the third and then person. He goes into the third person, and then he starts saying me. Yeah. So Which he's and Jesus Christ. <laughs> exactly. He was. He was like. Uh, identifying however he wanted to, and then <laughs> I have glorified you on earth. So he is well, talking about himself. I yeah, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was reading that too, Faith. Don't run. I mean, I'm also understanding that John has written this. You know, um, assuming he's giving a direct quote. But yeah, it is interesting. I was reading it too, going, why is he? He says. Your son, in reference to himself, he says him, in reference to himself, he says the only true God is Jesus Christ, in reference to himself. And then at the end, in verse 5, he closes with an I. I, yeah. So, is it because John is counting this? Is that exactly how Jesus prayed? I, I, I'm assuming it is, but I don't know. And I'm going to say I don't have an answer. Yeah, I, I don't personally, know I think it's a glimpse into the fact that one person, two natures. Okay. So he has the divine nature and he has a, a human nature. That's personally where I would go with it. It's a glimpse into that. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. But still, like he's, like you said, distancing, distancing. Distancing. Thank you. That word himself from both those identities, Son and Jesus Christ. Why do you say he's well, it's like he's talking about this, just the son, and then Jesus Christ versus me and me I. And I. I. Yeah, and again, this is where I realize that Jesus is not authoring. I mean, yes, God is authoring the scripture. I'm just taking it that John is helping us with some clarity. <laughs> and when he says I, it's very emphatic, too. You don't need to say I in the Greek. It's in the verb. So when he says I, he says, I on my part, I glorified thee. I mean, it's really emphasizing, I did this. And I think it's going back to the plan. It's showing, hey, you, I, I submitted to your plan. 
right out of Hebrews 10, right? I'm leaving heaven. I'm going to join myself with the human nature, right? And it's emphasizing, I did that. I did what you instructed me to do. I've done everything down here on this earth that you, I did the works that you laid out for me down here and it's coming to an end. Is that the sun talking? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's all the sun for quite a, the whole chapter. This is his prayer to the father as as a, I would say as a high, as a priest, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, he, so he, this is a, a, his communication from his human nature to the father. The rest of the way through, I haven't read it all, but the rest of the way through, it's, it is all first person. Mm-hmm. The rest of the way. So, could he have said in chapter, or verse 1, Father, the time has come. Glorify me, that I may glorify you. That's right. Absolutely could have done that. Could have done that. Is it, does it, does it mean anything different? Because I think as Josh said, he's, he is in here kind of drawing a distinction his two natures. I think that that's a good way of, of understanding this. And I think that that's why, and we've been over this in verse 3. Can I add one more thing? Please. The other thing is, when you, we're kind of getting confused with all these glories, but what you have, and I have this note here, this is one of the places where uh, one of our professors would emphasize inherent glory, ascribed glory, and acquired and shared glory. And the glory, that being a glory that he had from creation, because he's God, and then a glory he acquired because he became a man, and then a glory that he's going to then share with us because he gets us a new identity. And uh, so that's part of what's going on there with the glory. It's different opinions about his identity that is then going to come across to us. So, I, I don't know about you, but is, is this like, when you're talking about the, you know, whether he's talking in the first person or he's saying, me or I, or he's talking about your son. Um, to me, that kind of is an emphasis on he he does have two natures, and so if if you're reading through scripture and stuff, and you're always hearing Jesus say I I I or whatever, you know what I mean? He's he's like this is so I am God and I am I'm God the Son and I am Jesus Christ and and this is. The way that they're wording this is kind of showing that. It's one of the places. And the other thing I would say is the way he uses Son and Jesus Christ, it kind of, um, like when you say, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Son is usually a name that attributed, that you would say, that points to his deity. Because he's the unique one-of-a-kind Son. How is he the unique one-of-a-kind Son? He's a Son like no other Son. He's the one person in the Godhead that had the unique privilege and honor of communicating deity, right? And uh, But then when you get down to where it says, the first time it says Jesus Christ, and this is eternal life, this eternal life is that they might know thee, the only true God, even Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, right? But he didn't become Jesus until he came down here, right? And he became Christ, when he came down here and got that title. Um, so you would almost think, you sent the son. You didn't send Jesus Christ. That's not what he uses here. He says, so he's saying that Jesus Christ is the son. It's saying, that's who I, that's my identity. I'm the son, Jesus Christ. 
we've said this before at the end of verse three. I think the, one of the reasons he cites, one of the reasons he distinguishes himself from the Father by rather than citing himself as God, but he says Jesus Christ, and this is important, is that when you and I have eternal life, whose life is eternal life? With what? Whose life? Oh, God's, whose, okay, God's, it's God's kind of life. It's God's kind of life. A man. <clears throat> but can you and I use eternal life just exactly like God does? No. No. I like, I can't zip through space, and I can't be everywhere at, at like once. The first human being who had eternal life was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the first one. So that's the significance. You you get to have eternal life within the right. even when you're glorified, even when this your whole human nature. Is the limitations you have right now are gone, and you can move through space. You still can't be everywhere at once. You still can only be in one place at a time. You can know far, far more than you know now, but you still aren't going to be omniscient. You're still not going to know the hearts of all men, things like Jesus Christ did. So you move out there into eternity, and we're glorified. We have these things, but we still have limitations of a human nature into the, those limits as a creature rather than the creator, like Jesus Christ refer, referencing his human nature, that's the limit of our, it, our experience of eternal life. But we are sharing life with the Father. We are learning something about God the Father. So go back, what's the new command? As I have loved you. Which is why Jesus indicates, I'm teaching through First John on Thursday nights, and we're going through there, and he says over there, you know what? You can't say you know God if you don't love. You know why? Because human nature, we think, oh, I know what it's like to love. Unsaved people go, I love my little baby girl. I love my baby boy. I love my wife, and things like that. Do you, what? What? She says she loves tacos. She loves tacos? Oh, I love tacos. That's okay. You're just naming things we love. Okay. (laughs) But but none of us love sacrificially like God does. None of us really know how to completely put others ahead of ourselves, even if it means we go to a cross. Yeah, are there parents that might step in front of a car to save the life of their kids? Sure. Yeah, with difficulty. But in other words, none of us really know how to really fully lay our lives down. Really set them aside to do somebody else's will. We don't do that. Even parents don't do that. They do that sporadically once in a while for our kids. But we don't. Because sometimes we're like, don't bother me right now. I'm busy working on this. Help me with this or go away. You probably never ever said that to your kids, but I'm sure I did said that a few times when my girls were growing up. But we don't really know what that's like. So think about that. When you are saved, and the first time you actually get to exercise this self-sacrificial love, where you really love somebody else, and you, have, you do not care in the least what you get out of it. All you want is God's best for that individual. That's the only thing that's on your mind. That happens, and you're going, wait a second. I know what my love's like. My love, just like Paul tells us, and Jesus indicates, my, lo- my human love has always got a little selfish bent somewhere in there. And because of that, all of a sudden, I, when, I, when I use that, I just got to know God a little bit. And I do it again, and I get to know God a little bit more. I do it again, I get to know God a little bit more. See, so that's what you're doing. When you're exercising this, you are getting to know God because you're using his life 
by using his kind of love in the way that he wants you to use that kind of love. And you're getting to know him in your experience going, I'm getting a better picture of what, how you loved us. Wow. And you actually on an experiential level, not just because you sat in a Bible study and somebody told you that. It's because you actually are living that reality out. You're going, wow. But that's true for other things too. Love just happens to be the new command, but, the, but there's other things we do that are part of that experience. The whole fruit of the Spirit. To actually know what it is for the first time to have peace in an absolute stormy chaos of life and to experience real peace, real settledness, you go, this is unreal. This is unreal. But this is God. God never sits in, hand, in heaven and wrings his hands. Ever. Even when Christ is on the cross. I heard people saying that last week. Listen to different people talking online about... Uh, Going to the cross. Oh, God. Just think of how, how tormented the father was of the son. No. You know what he says in Hebrews or in uh, Isaiah? The father was pleased to crush the son. If the father suffered on the cross because of Christ, then, the then you're saved partly by the father's suffering. And he wasn't. Christ is the one who suffered. He was the one that was cut off. The father and the spirit in the realm of their deity, unaffected and unchanged. We like to think of them up there going, oh, my son is on the cross. That is not what the scripture says. And some people don't like that. They want God the Father to be tormented. He's not. Christ was tormented. You are not saved by the Father being tormented. You were saved. Pleased yeah, the Father to that's right. It was completely, fully his, his will that that happens. So anyway, all that to say, those are examples of the fact this is what we're getting to know. And that's why he uses Jesus Christ again in verse 3, because it is laying. It's bringing his humanity into view with what's happening. And when you learn the eternal life, you're getting to know the persons of the Godhead, the Father in particular, Jesus Christ. You say, why is the Spirit not in there? Because remember what Jesus said in the upper room back in chapter 16? The Father's going to glorify me, not himself. So sometimes we're surprised. Well, how come the Father and Spirit doesn't get in there? Because He's there. He's the one that's making it all possible at that moment in time. But He's not there going, hey, me, me, don't forget me. I'm doing this for you right now. I'm giving you the fruit. No, He's pointing to Christ. Christ, this is Christ-likeness. He's pointing to glorify Christ in that. And Jesus said that back in John 16. Is that also kind of a way the Father is going to glorify the Son by sending the Spirit? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It just doesn't come out in this thing. But remember when the Son is, when, when, the, when, the, when the Father glorifies the Son by ascending, when the Son goes up there into heaven, what's one of the things he does according to John 14, 17? I'm going to ask the Father for another comforter or helper for you. The Holy Spirit, he says. And then he will come down here and then he will glorify the Son. Glorifies the Son? Yeah, and God the Father. So verse 4 then says, I have glorified you upon the earth. Peggy already jumped forward on this. So when Jesus walked the earth, we've talked about this. This has been the, we've been spending way longer than I ever intended going through John on this. But that's what Jesus was doing. All these works, all these signs were for him to complete the works the Father gave him to do. And that's how he showed the Father's reputation. <laughs> By doing these sign miracles, these works that the Father gave him to do, he says, I've already done those. But now 
So I have done that, finishing those works, but now glorify me, you glorify me, Father, alongside yourself with the glory which I had before the world began. So this is a Josh said, this is his innate glory. This is the glory that he shared with the Father and the Spirit in all eternity, before any creation existed, before the Trinity, there was a council. But so before the council actually decided officially to decide what they, in their omniscience, knew they would decide. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy theological things that come into this. But So, I'm oh, sorry, I cut you off mid-sentence. No. So it's just that he had this way back in eternity past. And that also is going to come back because what did it say over there in, in uh, uh, Philippians 2? He emptied himself. So he didn't walk around shining in glory. He didn't shine in this unapproachable glory. People approached him left and right. People brought their little kids to him to have him lay their hands on their little kids. You don't do that with a being that's in, living in inapproachable, unapproachable light. But 1 Timothy 6 says that's where he's dwelling now, and that's where he would have been in eternity past, with the Father, as well as the Spirit, dwelling in unapproachable light. Because nobody would approach him in eternity past. But when then the world's created, that's what they were. And he empties himself of that glory. So he doesn't manifest his glory when he's walking on the earth by just doing whatever he wants and just shining light all the time. One time, one time. Does that on the on the mountain? And now, that, even though he doesn't say it, could it almost be said when he's saying "glorify the glorify me"? Is it, it could it be could it be interpreted to be Father, uh, resurrect me and sit me at your right hand? That's exactly the way I would understand that. That it's talking about his resurrection. Yeah. That's exactly what. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you said, Peg? Thank you, Josh. An hour ago. <laughs> But it's all these things that come. It's all these things that come with it. I mean, that's the whole punch of all of this. It's not just that he rises in a sense and sits down. It's that all of this sets in motion. All this stuff. If you don't have this, the rest of the upper room, you might have taken throw in the trash because none of it's going to happen. You can't have this love. You don't have this relationship to the Spirit. You can't talk to God like this. You can't abide in Christ. You can't learn truth. All of these things that Jesus is promising these disciples as new things that we get to enjoy that nobody prior to the beginning of the church ever had the opportunity to experience. None of those things would be true if the Son did not go through the cross and the Father resurrect him and he ascended on high and all of this other stuff is put into place. It's all put in gear. And so he says... But that glory there is that he's going he's to take back. He's going to receive back from the Father. Not just going to go up there and grab back at that glory, just like, remember in Philippians, he didn't look at equality with God as a thing to grab at. He's not going to grab it. He's going to willingly let the Father grant him that glory that he'd had in the past. We'd say, well, it's yours. Just go pick it up. He's still going to, he's still going to play this role until the Father grants him this. And I think that, that at that point, that's going to be the end of him being doulos, slave, with regard to the Father. Okay. Took a little, took, <laughs> I thought we'd go, I, I honestly thought we were going to read through all of chapter 17, believe it or not. That's how foolish Tim is. Well, I didn't, I didn't know if anybody would have that many questions in chapter 17, I guess it's crazy. There's a lot. So, yeah. What were you going to say over there? Oh, yes, yeah. Ben, I'm sorry. Thank you. 
I'll tell you what, when I take the margaritas off, I cannot read anything. Mm-hmm. It's blurry. A-G-E. The man's game over here. <laughs> well, yeah, be, before you articulated that, I guess that was the connection that, that I was thinking. I was not thinking resurrection, if I'm quite honest. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I have with you before the world began. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just I'm still wrestling with this a little bit. Uh, from verse 1, Father, the hour, the time has, has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I mean, I'm looking at this like he's getting ready to go to the, to the cross. Mm-hmm. And, he, and then he falls in over the, hey, I did the things that you, you, you wanted. I, you know, I brought you glory in that sense. And I know, you know, glory is like a weird word. And we can understand a definition of it, even a biblical definition. And sometimes they're praying, God, help me to glorify you. When I say that, I guess I don't think in weird terms. I just think, like, help me to lift you up, to represent you. To I know we would say, you know, give the full weight or whatever the character, but just help me maybe honor would be another way to think of it. Just in layman's terms, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but so I'm looking at this. The hours come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. I guess I'm looking at that like he's heading to the cross and help me as I go through this to represent you well. Is how I'm looking at it. Maybe that's not entirely what it's pointing at, but and then and then you know. I'm, done these works, but then verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I have with you before the world began. Is that for that moment, or is it for, is it for post-resurrection? Because when you, I was going to go there too, like, thinking of Philippians, that he laid it, that he put it aside. So I guess I'm looking for when is the moment that he's going to regather that glory that he had. I think the with, when you, in yours it says in your presence, and I think that reflects the with alongside of, it's para, along the side of yourself. But yeah, it's saying when I'm alongside of you, honor what you said in your decree. When you said the plan was I would come down here and be a man, and I'm going to take on sin, this is him speaking in the realm of, in, in the realm of his deity. There's no issue. He doesn't need to communicate. Lost anyway. But because in the realm of his humanity, he's, the divine person is determining that in the realm of his humanity, this isn't. that's why there's a problem here. That's why he needs to communicate. He's entrusting his concerns to the Father just as we should, right? And he's saying, hey, I'm going to go under the knife here. I'm going to surgery, not surgery. He's going to, something bigger than surgery. He's going to take on the sins of the race, of the whole, all humanity, from the beginning of time to the end of time. And he's saying, when this is all done, hey, I've done everything you told me to do, and now I'm going to do the ultimate thing that was the whole reason for this plan. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to take on the sins of the world. And I'm going to, just like you said, you're going to raise me up. And I'm going to raise, and the Spirit's going to, and I'm going to go up, and I'm going to be alongside of you again. And it's going to be like it was. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. yeah. And he's, he, he's not off somewhere talking by himself here. He's talking in front of 11 guys. Mm-hmm. So it's not just for he talking to the Father. It's that 
these men in here. A son. God talking to God. Which, I mean, when we all pray together and we listen to others pray, and we're part of that involves recognizing who God is, what he's done, so that he's going through the ways that he's glorified him already. He's glorified him already in the things that he's done, in the ones that he's given him, and all those things. You're remembering everything that happened for yourself, those that are listening, reminding you, praising God with, you know, the things that he has been true to his word with. So I think all of that comes into play, doesn't it? I mean, we don't just pray asking for things. We remember, okay, your word is truthful. You said this. I see where you did it. Worship, thank you. Anybody else have something to add or ask? Well, in kind of going along with what Holland said, it's this isn't a re No, you were the one that was saying that. These other guys are in the room. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got to follow where people are. These other guys are listening to this. Well, think about that. This is also being written so the group of people sitting in the Orth's living room can sit and walk through this and think through what did it mean for the son to become a man? And what did it mean for him to go to the cross? And what did this mean about his reputation and the reputation of the father? And how did he relate to all of this? I mean, this is this is... I mean, in some ways, this is kind of the, this is the background to, to where we are now, right? In the, in the way that we think and, and function. So we get, we get in on this prayer. We get in on listening to this prayer, and then we have to think about and wrestle through, what did that mean for him to go through this? And then what is that, what's the objective of all of that? To do the Father's will. Yeah, right to the very end, even to the point that, he no yeah. longer has to do the Father's will anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope it's clearer than it was before when you read it. I hope we didn't just stick the stick in the bottom of the creek and muddy the waters. <laughs> it's just... I think it's neat to dig in yeah. and just dwell on it a little bit and not read it flippantly. And right. It really is a really significant passage. It's the Lord's Prayer, the real Lord's Prayer, and that's it's kind of cool, you know. We, we, so many people quote the, the disciples' prayer, they call it the Lord's Prayer, they don't even know what it means. They just read it as superstitious, kind of like a, you know, abracadabra kind of thing, and think it's supposed to do something special, bless an event, whatever, but it, it has no purpose for the Christian today, quoting the disciples' prayer that people call the Lord's prayer, but this has a huge impact to today, mm -hmm. and us understanding it is—it's impactful. Yeah. So I appreciate all the questions, all the comments. I hope it's given us a better clarity as he's looking forward to what's going to happen, and I think the, the, this balances out as you keep moving. So you know, if you want to. I'm going to be gone the next couple of weeks. Maybe Josh wants to keep tackling this. I have no idea what he's going to do when you get together. But you might want to just, I would encourage you to keep reading through the rest of the chapter. There's some very interesting things that come out, and all these things tie together. It's amazing how, you know, I've, I've told this before. When I was growing up as a kid, you read verses, and you just kind of like, oh, there was a pithy saying there, there was a pithy saying there. 
and you didn't, I didn't realize until I was older and read it with more serious, just how interconnected so much truth is. In the Gospel of John, people always say the Gospel of John is the simplest of the Gospels to read. I honestly think it's, it, it can be. There's things that are very simple for people to get, but there's also a lot of incredible details in this. I mean, think about this. This is written 60 years after the church started. And John is going back and he's trying to say, I want you to go back and I want you to walk through the life of Christ, but I want you to look at things he did that actually were looking forward to where we were. Most of Jesus' ministry was all about Israel. <clears throat> but there were things that he was doing with regard to Israel that actually had a look forward to where you and I are, including this prayer. Because he's going to say down in the context, I'm praying for these 11 guys, but I'm not praying just for them. I'm praying for those, this is us, who believe in me through their word. So this prayer is, he's asking, it seems like he's asking about himself. He is, but he's also going to be asking for you and I. And there's, there's some passage, there's some sections, some things I'm just going to tell you in chapter 17 that really challenge me with regard to the way I have failed to live the Christian life. Sometimes as a pastor, as a Christian leader, be very honest when I read through that. Um, but we'll save that for another time, or maybe Josh will hit it and I won't have to do that. I don't know what Josh is gonna do, so. Okay, anything else that somebody wants to add or ask?